Well, what a beautiful psalm to sing in juxtaposition, but not juxtaposition in being opposed, but just over and against uh, Proverbs 31. Imagine if the Psalm 112 man could marry the Proverbs 31 woman. What a beautiful, what a beautiful marriage that would be. And indeed, it is a wonderful picture of what the bride of Christ is to be and in Christ will be as he makes us radiant and what kind of man and bridegroom uh, our Lord and Savior is. He is such a man. Well, today we conclude our short, our brief look at the book of Ruth. And our text today is verses 13 to 22, and so I'll just go ahead and read that. It was our Old Testament reading last week, and I, we chose not to um, read it again, but to maybe give this picture of this beautiful woman in Proverbs 31 as a lens by which we might think and, and see and identify and relate to Ruth. So here on page 243, let me just read the back end of the book. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they call his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. When we consider the book of Ruth, and, and here we have the, the privilege now of being at the end of it and kind of looking back and surveying, which is a, a book that's not, it's not like when we went through Ezekiel. And, you know, <laughs> it took a long time. And we, we, and we did every other chapter when we did, when we did Ezekiel. And when we stood on the back end of Ezekiel and, and surveyed that, one, it was a scary thing to survey. But that was a big landscape. Ruth is, Ruth is a pretty you know, short little story, pretty tight uh, short story. <clears throat> and here we are in this last section and have the chance to look back on it. When we do so, we see a couple things. One, because we're looking with redeemed eyes, we see this as a beautiful story of God's provision, right? We see God through the book. It's just like, it's our default. It's like I try to remind my, again, my students at Chapel Field, you know, as Christians, you, you look at the world through glasses and everyone does. The non-believer looks through at the world through glasses as well. They wake up every morning and they look at the world through certain presuppositions and assumptions that they just don't question. And it, and those presuppositions, these glasses that you wear, affect everything you see. They're, in, they're your interpretive grid for what you see. And certain glasses allow you to see things that other glasses don't allow you to see. And, 
And we as Christians wake up every morning and our glasses are theistic and triune and they're biblical. And we just see things that the non-believer doesn't see. I mean, you, you walk out today and you see the goodness of God. You see a lot of what the non-believer sees. I mean, you see snow on the ground and you see blue in the sky and so forth. But, but you interpret it. it come, that same thing that they see comes through those lenses and you interpret it and you see in it the glory and goodness of God. And, and you say things like, praise God. You say things like, thank you. <laughs> that, that comes from you because you have lenses which interpret what you are perceiving. And, and when we look at Ruth, God is, God is not mentioned very much in the book. We don't see him doing much. We don't see him directly, just on the page, see him doing much. We're told that there's a famine. We're told that God at the end then brings, um, uh, uh, brings conception to Ruth, just a few little things. And yet when you and I look at the book, we see God all through it. We, we, just, we know that the, the writer is being tongue-in-cheek when he says things like, it just so happened. We know that because we have Christian eyes and we look at this and we see God on, on all the pages in the story. It's like the, it's like the book of Esther. You know, God's never mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet, it, we don't say, hmm, why is this book in the Bible? We don't even think that because we read it and we just we see God all through it in, in, his, in his inscrutable hand of providence. And such as it is in the book of Ruth, but if we just pause a second and reflect back on the book of Ruth, we would find it's not a very impressive book. I mean, it's a, not only not in its length, but it's a story about just a random couple. I mean, who the heck is, are these people? Right? Who's Elimelech? Who's Naomi? They become these big characters to us because the book is in our Bible. But, but in, in, in the story itself, you're just reading the story the first time. Now, now, until you get to our text today, until you get here. Now, see, again, we read all this back. We kind of have that privilege of knowing what's going on. But if we don't have that, we just have a nice story about a woman who we, we can sympathize with in Naomi. We can feel her pain going all the way back to the beginning. We can really feel her pain and her loss. We see Ruth, who does impress us with her virtue. Now, that, that isn't, that's a nice thing to have in the story, her virtue. And so there's something to that. She's a virtuous woman, and, and for that, we, the story becomes interesting. And then we see a Leverite marriage, I mean, which is what, Again, it's in the Torah so that this just becomes the way it happens in Israel. So there's nothing shocking about that. That, oh, there's a, a redeemer within the family who can help them. This, this happens all the time in Israel. It must. It's not like this is some shocking thing. Like, wow, there was this guy who just was willing to marry a widow. You know, it's like, yeah in some sense, underwhelming. I say that not to strip our joy in the story of Ruth, but, but to highlight the text that we're looking at today because this story is backloaded in its significance. 
The point of the story is not just to tell us a wonderful love story, not just a heroic story about, about a, a guy who was willing to step up and do what another guy was unwilling to do, not just about bad decisions by Elimelech and Naomi and the boys. The point of the story is what we get to right here. It's the way the story ends. And it ends with one of those beautiful genealogies. And Mark, Mark did a fine job today uh, reading the genealogy from the book of Matthew. The point of the story is this. The point of the story is the way it ends. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. That in all of the murkiness of what happens in the book of Ruth, and again, we, you, have to, you have to recognize that you've been sitting in the narrator's chair. You've been sitting with the, if you will, the omniscience of the, of the narrator. You know what Ruth and Naomi and Malon and Killian and Elimelech and Boaz do not know. You know stuff. You know where this thing is going. You know who these people are. They don't know who they are. They are in the weeds. They are down in the middle of the forest, in, in the, just surrounded by trees. They don't see the timeline. They don't see the tapestry. They're just caught up in this one particular frayed thread. That's all they can see in the moment. It's just one frayed thread that makes very little sense to them. They cannot possibly see in this moment how this fits into even the little thing on the tapestry that their thread is part of, much less this beautiful, ornate tapestry that's being woven. What we get at the end of our text is the word from the author, this is part of a tapestry. And we're just getting, at the end, in this little genealogy, we're just getting one little figure on the tapestry of which Ruth and Boaz were a thread. Because this genealogy gets us to David. Right? I mean, it, it, we see some stuff, and all of a sudden it links us back, and we're going to think about that in a second. It's going to link us back, because it goes back before Boaz. It's going to go back to Perez, Tamar, and it's going to lead us forward to David, which goes beyond what Ruth could have known. So the, the book is being written at least after the time of David. And yet we know that there's even more to the story than that. We see how we know now where this story fits into that beautiful tapestry. Though we find ourselves in the weeds. You don't know who you are. <laughs> you know, again, we forget you don't know who I am. You, know, you, you, don't know, you don't know what role I'm playing in this story. I don't know what role you're playing in the story. And you don't know what role you're playing in the story. And I don't know what role I'm playing in the story. How can I see? How can I see my one frayed little thread, which at times feels more frayed than other times? How this one little thread and the little places it's connected is going to be woven into something great and grand and attached to that whole story. It's an amazing thing. And the fact that we don't know 
shouldn't unsettle us. We should find our confidence back in this story. I think in large part, that's what this story is here to do for us. It reminds us that our little frayed thread is being woven by God into something bigger and better than you could ever imagine. Ruth, what do, again, even when they reach the end of their story, what do they know? They only know that, okay, the Lord has preserved a legacy. That's all they know. The Lord has preserved the seed, the land, the offspring of Elimelech. That's really all they know. It's not like Ruth is thinking to herself, oh, this is great. There will be, you know, a Messiah in, in Israel, and, and, you know, and I have the privilege of him coming through my, my, you know, it's like she didn't know any of that. She just knows, oh, we'll have provision the rest of my life. That's, I'm secure. And my husband's family is going to be sustained. The line, I know this would have mattered to him. I know this would have mattered to my father-in-law, and this would have mattered to my husband, and we have preserved his name, and we have preserved the land the Lord has provided for us. That's it. That's what she knows. And boy, we could say to Ruth, you don't know the half of it. She knows nothing about David. She knows nothing of what David's going to do, her great-grandson, much less David's son and David's Lord and what he's going to do and he's going to do because Ruth was faithful. She can't know these things. But this is where for you and for I, for me, our confidence must be in the Lord even when we cannot see because of stories like this. This is where the Bible, this is, in, in many ways, this is how you use the Bible. And I, I don't mean use pejoratively. I just mean this is, this is how you take up your sword and go to war, right? Like, what do you do with Ruth? You let Ruth transform your mind. You do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but you become transformed in the renewing of your mind by letting Ruth, the story of Ruth, soak down into you so that you begin to think and view the world through the lens of Ruth. Even when you don't know the specifics, you are able to find confidence because I know what God did in that story, and they could never have understood it. Therefore, I will have confidence even though I cannot understand. I just think it's so important for us because Ruth and Naomi went through really bad stuff. Really, really hard stuff. Right? It, it wasn't made easier for them. And they never got like explanation. But again, we get, we get to see it. They couldn't, they couldn't have known it. Well, I want us to think about this today and, and why we had, I had Mark uh, uh, work through the, the genealogy. When we think about this book and we come to the end, here we come to the conclusion. This book is about the fact that through this, tangled web of problems, the, the writer is saying, came our king. Our king, for the writer of the book, is David. And the author of this book is saying, and hence David. This story 
demonstrates the providential hand by which God has delivered us with our king. Which, if you remember in the book of Judges, was the problem all along. There was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel's a mess because she does not have a king. But praise God, we have a king, and this is how we got him. And it's kind of a murky way. Think about what is involved in here. Disobedience, right? Elimelech hightailing it out of the covenantal land through disobedience, through terrible imprudence, lack of wisdom, if not pure disobedience, at least lack of wisdom in other cases, through suffering, through suffering, through how can we say it? Unexpected things like Moabites? Uh, our king, our future, our salvation, our deliverance hinges on a Moabite woman? Think about all these crazy things that work into the story to bring us to what the author wants us to see, the last word of the story, David. So God is working. One thing we learned from this book is that God works through a murky, twisted story to bring about his perfect purposes. God works through, again, I think Doug Wilson says something to the effect, God draws straight with crooked lines, something like that. <laughs> I like that. God uses the murky, twisted, distorted, flawed, disobedient paths of his people to bring about his not useful, not, hey, good, not, hey, we made the best of it, his perfect purposes. Brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Which, again, doesn't let us off the hook for our disobedience. It doesn't mean, oh, good, so it doesn't matter how you live because don't worry, God's going to work it for good. You are responsible to be wise. You are responsible to seek good counsel. You are responsible to be obedient. But be encouraged in this. Even your disobedience will be worked by God for good. Even your foolishness, your bad decisions, your sinfulness and disobedience will be worked by God for good. He will draw straight with crooked lines. You will not and you cannot frustrate the good purposes of God. Again, we don't take that and read it as, oh good, I can take my hands off the wheel. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say to do that. Get your hands on the wheel and look both ways before you cross the road. Stop at the red light. Don't just go barreling through because you say, well, it doesn't matter. God's going to, even if I'm in an accident, somehow God will, that's not, God, the Bible never goes there. But where the Bible does go is that even by our acts of disobedience, he will accomplish his purposes. And if you are a child of God, those purposes will be for your good. And the story of Ruth is this. I mean, even 
Elimelech's sinful disobedience doesn't just work to the good of Ruth. Hey, you know what? Ruth got even something you know, better than Malon. That's not the point because we know the story transcends these characters. It transcends by Elimelech's, let's call it sinful. Maybe we could argue that. But let's call it sinful decision to leave the land if we really just worst case scenario it. It's by Elimelech's sinful decision that we get Jesus Christ. And by which Elimelech is saved from death and has his sins forgiven. It is by Joseph's brother's wicked, wicked decisions that they are delivered from famine. The Lord uses Joseph to get to the top to deliver them. Them, not some, not some other people. That's what's so shocking in that story. It's not just, oh, well, a bunch of, they did this and that was horrible and they'll be damned for it. But, but, but you know what? The Lord used this to bless the Egyptians. No, he blessed them. They came back to him and they have food for them. I mean, how ridiculously humbling is that? The Lord used their wickedness to be their salvation. And of course, I mean, it just takes us right to the story of Jesus Christ. I mean, we nailed him to the cross and by that act we are saved? Makes sense of that one. We nailed him to the cross and through that we have salvation eternally. God didn't just do it. God used wicked men to do it. And by that wickedness, delivered them. Those again who are his. I mean, how can we make sense of these things? The book of Ruth shows this on a really tame level. In fact, when we start thinking about Joseph and we think about Jesus. But God works through a twisted tale and a murky history to bring about his purposes, and he certainly did that. The fact that it was, of all people, a Moabite woman who is going to maintain the line and we know ultimately allow us to have King David and ultimately have Christ is a humbling thing for, for the readers. And, and the, the, the people in the story, this is, it's not a problem. It's not like they're blown, thrown off by this. The fact that it's a Moabite woman, they're rejoicing in it. In fact, they're just blessing her. She's loved by the people. I mean, if you go back into last week's text, and I mentioned that I would push it to this week, verses 11 and 12, I mean, look at how they're blessing her. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make this woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah the two that built the house of Israel, and may you prosper. They, they are asking the Lord's blessing upon Boaz in terms of Ruth. And, and what are they comparing Ruth to? Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs of Israel. Now again, they may just be saying it because that's what you say. But they say more than they know because she is going to be that. She is going to be that. So they're not thrown off by the murkiness of the story. And then, and then again in verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. 
So again, these, these monumental, relatable figures, because you know, Tamar also was an outsider who was looking to preserve a family line and did it in a squirrely, twisted, sinful way. And yet, and yet even Tamar, who sleeps with her father-in-law while acting like a prostitute so that she could deceive him into making her pregnant, this is the line, this is the, the, the sovereign Lord chooses this line. Well, what other line is there? Is there a purer line? You're working with sinners after all. But what a twisted story it is. So we got God working through a murky history. The second thing I think we have to learn from this is that God brings fullness out of emptiness. And we saw this theme all through the book. It's very important for us to think about what God we have, what God we serve. And ours is a God who brings fullness out of emptiness. If you go all the way back into the very beginning, and this is a good, if you, when you read your Bible, it's good to have like certain um, sort of big filters as you're reading, just themes that you could be looking for and see if they don't pop up again and again. And this is one of them. God working through evil and bringing about his good purposes, that's a theme you can think about, and you'll find it all through the Bible. But here's another one that yours is a God who brings fullness out of emptiness. And go right back to the beginning of creation. And God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. And then, in the six days of creation, God forms his creation and then fills it with all sorts of good things. And we've reflected upon this before as a church. Like, why when God created the world, did he create it formless and empty? Because that's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, empty. And the spirits hover, and the, there's darkness on the face of the deep, and the spirits hovering over the waters. So we just get this formless ball of water. There's no structure to it. It's dark. The spirit is hovering over it. We thought about that on our table talk. It's like, why would God do that? God's God. He could just say, and God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was just like 2022, but better. Not all, the, not all the craziness, just in his perfect state. He could have just done it, and it was filled with stuff, but he doesn't do that. God creates the world formless and empty and then does stuff to it. And I believe the answer to this is because he wants to draw it out. He wants you to look. He wants you to see it. Rather than just creating a world filled with stuff, he creates it empty and then fills it so that you see him do it. He does the same thing with Adam and Eve, of course. Why does he just create man and then say, well, it's not good that he's alone? Is it because God didn't think this through? You know, he should have, he should have you know, run it through the, the, the lab a few more times and realized it's not good for man. Is that why? No. Why would, then why would he create something that's not good? He says it's not good that man is alone. He needs a help me. And then... He puts Adam to sleep, and from Adam makes Eve. Like, why do that? You're God. You could have just created Adam and Eve. In fact, you could have just created humanity. But he creates Adam, and then goes, well, that's not good. All right, let me create Eve. And again, the answer is because I want you to see that it's not good. 
And so I'm going to make Eve. So we're all going to watch this. What makes this good? Oh, okay, the fact that there's Eve. I'm going to make it formless and good, a formless and, and void. And then go, that's not good. But God says, let there be light. And he goes, that's good. And then each day of creation, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's very good. I want you to see the kind of God I am. I am a God who takes emptiness and I make it fullness. And you need to see this within the created order because we're going to hit a new level of emptiness after Genesis 3. <laughs> when, when the world is stripped of its righteousness and a new darkness comes over the waters, a new darkness comes upon the land. You need to know in the midst of the emptiness, in the midst of the new emptiness, in the midst of the new darkness, that I am a God who says, let there be light, that I am a God who will bring fullness out of emptiness. And in the story of Ruth, we get this story told again. Naomi was full, she thought. But she's come back empty. But, but this is just the state at which God does his work. Nothing in my hands I bring, Augustus Top Lady says in Rock of Ages. It's when our hands are empty that indeed they can be filled. And ours is a God who loves to fill the emptiness. It's what he does. And we see it in Ruth and in Naomi particularly. Naomi said when she came back from the land, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has treated me bitterly. And she said that with Ruth standing right next to her. She says to her friends, I went away full. I've come back with nothing. Sure, Ruth appreciated that. I went away full. I've come back with nothing. No offense, Ruth. <laughs> None taken, Mom. Now, at the end of the story, Ruth marries Boaz, has secured a line for the family, has secured the land of the family, is pregnant with a child from Boaz, and the women who gather around Naomi before and who have to hear Naomi go, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for I have nothing. Now these same women say, Naomi, you are so blessed. What, a, what fullness is Ruth to you? She is to you more than seven sons. Seven. Fullness. She is more to you. She is more of a blessing to you. She is better to have than seven sons would be. The Lord has not left Naomi empty, nor does he leave you empty. Though in that little frayed thread in the midst of this tapestry, it may not make sense to you. And I know you think you can see everything and I can see everything. And golly, I have nothing. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Ruth forces us to zoom out and see that indeed he will make you full. Not merely by, by filling what you lost. Oh, you lost a child here. I'll give you another one. Oh, you lost a husband? Here, I'll give you another. That's not the fullness. The fullness of this story is the line that comes at the end. And by this came David. And now for us, let us fill in the lines. And by David, so-and-so. By David, so-and-so. And down the line until Mary. We get the full story in Matthew. Who gave birth to Jesus. 
That is the fullness the Lord is giving you. In whatever the frayedness of your life is and your thread is in this life, that is the fullness he is giving you and has given you and given you and will finally give you on that great and glorious day. The Lord will not leave you empty. I can't remember if it was here or in school, but I referenced the, the story of the rich young ruler when he goes away weeping. Right, he comes full, but the Lord wants to empty him. Right? Oh, just one thing you lack. Sell what you have and give it to the poor. But I'm full. I'm just asking for one more thing. Like, what else must I do to get to have that, to have the kingdom? And Jesus says, oh, just empty your hands. Sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. He goes away weeping. He can't do it. Right? He can't do it. And Jesus turns to the disciples. See how difficult? And, and again, the disciples say, we, you know, I think it's Peter, We've given everything for you. And Jesus says, no one has given anything for me that will not be restored a hundredfold. I will leave no one empty. Right? No, one, no one ends up empty in this story. No one, no one ends up depleted. Everybody ends full to overflowing in the kingdom of God. And that's a story we have in Ruth. And then finally, and really this point, I probably should have just linked in with my first point, that this story teaches us that God breaks all the paradigms. It's, it's not just that God works through, through the, the sinful ways. But in the, in the, he breaks our paradigms because if Israel could have written its story about how we would get from Abraham to the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, I think they probably could have written it in advance, say, well, here, we can anticipate this is how it would be like. But when Matthew tells the story, it's interesting. Matthew feels the need in that story to mention a couple women. He doesn't mention every mother. He doesn't say, you know, and so-and-so begat so-and-so through so-and-so. He doesn't do that. But if you caught it, he mentions four. Four women in the story. And three of them get us up to this story, and then one is shortly to come after. But he mentions Tamar, right, a non-Jewish woman who is instrumental in the story because by her we get Perez. But we get Perez not only through her, but we get Perez through her and her sinful acts relating to what we, we just said, the twisty tale. The second woman he mentions in Matthew's genealogy is Rahab who apparently is the mother of Boaz, which tells us something about Boaz and maybe his care for foreign women, seeing how his mother was taken care of and brought into the, the family. But Rahab, who, by the way, didn't just act like a prostitute, she was a prostitute. And she, and she gets mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew is not ashamed that, hey, I'm not just going to, hey, let's not, let's try and skip over the fact that Tamar did it this way. Hey, let's skip over the fact that it was Rahab who gave birth to Boaz. No, he says, pause, let's slap it right in the genealogy. Begot Boaz by Rahab. And then Ruth. So we've got these three foreign women 
Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, the Moabite woman. And then, of course, he mentions Bathsheba, you know, with whom David has an affair. And that is the line through which the Lord brings about Solomon, who will continue the line of David until the time of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning as we read through the story of Ruth, as you read, I encourage you to read it again. Let it not be the last time that you read the story of Ruth. But as you read it, to be reminded that you do not see your moment. You cannot interpret. We've talked about this in Sunday school many times, trying to interpret the hand of God's providence. Dangerous thing to do. Just receive the works of God's providence and trust that he is weaving your little thread into this beautiful and amazing tapestry. And live with confidence, knowing that if we are in Christ, all of our failings, all of our weaknesses, all of our idiosyncrasies, all of our characteristics that we think would disqualify us, like being a Moabite, in God's amazing providence are going to be worked together for the glory of the tapestry. And so therefore, continue on in obedience with confidence because you know even what the writer, the writer of Ruth knew what Ruth didn't know. This story leads to David. But you know what the writer of Ruth didn't know, that this story leads to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, all the threads still for us in ways we cannot imagine and will, will not be finally revealed until the day of his coming. But in Jesus Christ, all of the threads of his providence are brought together into something amazing and beautiful, something that becomes salvation for Ruth and for Boaz himself and for Obed and for Naomi and for Kilian and Malon and Elimelech and for you and me. So let us live with confidence in his providential and loving care. He'll draw straight with your crooked lines as well. All glory be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the success, the failings of the kingdom do not sit on our shoulders. For Father, we do not have the vision to see what needs to be seen and what needs to be done. But you do. And we thank you that in your providence you have been and are working through broken vessels such as we are, such as Ruth, and even Elimelech, Naomi, Boaz. And Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is in fact our kinsman redeemer, who has become famous in the land, and who is our hope and our salvation. He has secured for us the new heavens and the new earth. And he has secured for us a legacy and a line and inheritance. And we give you thanks for that. And we rejoice in it in his name and for your glory. Amen.